the FT. This was the week when Tunisia came to terms with the second jihadist attack in six months, when Greece closed its banks, when Heathrow's third runway came a little closer, and Prince Al-Walid of Saudi Arabia promised to give his $30 billion fortune to charity. I'm Henry Manson, and this is Best of the FT Podcast, where we rattle through the week's news with all the passion of an over-enthusiastic Uber driver. We start in Tunisia. More than 30 Britons died in an attack last week. Erica Solomon, our Middle East correspondent, said this raised big questions about the authorities' intelligence capacity. Again and again, what this year has shown is that they aren't able to target the right people. And, and this is a big problem in Tunisia because if you talk to most people on the street, they will tell you, I saw this Salafi mosque, I saw this guy with a long beard and a long robe. But these attackers didn't fit that stereotype. So they have a big problem with intelligence. And I didn't get the sense that they have a clear answer yet on how to solve that. Tunisia is the country where the Arab Spring started. It has also enjoyed a relatively stable transition to democracy. But as our foreign editor, Rula Khalaf, explained, that hasn't been enough. People don't feel that, you know, suddenly there's after the revolution, everything has changed. If you go to Tunis and you talk to politicians, yes, there you feel the change. But for ordinary people, things have just gotten worse. There's less hope. There are fewer jobs. And I think that is a very large part of the answer here. Rula Khalaf's assessment, the impact of the revolution has been fairly limited. Given that the tourist industry accounts for about one-seventh of Tunisia's economy, the situation is unlikely to improve quickly. In London this week, the FT's finance blog, Alphaville, held its annual festival, an opportunity to celebrate all the wonders of the financial world while getting horribly sunburnt. One of the big-name speakers there was Andrew Fastow, former finance chief at disgraced utility company Enron, and he told a packed audience that accounting and fraud go hand in hand, and that many companies are using the same techniques that landed Enron executives in jail. Isabella Kaminska from FT Alphaville was there. Isabella, what exactly was Fastow saying? It's funny, he started off with a really nice quip. He sort of said, I was known as the CFO, but in reality, I was the chief loophole officer. And he showed a prize that he got the very same year that he got his prison card, which was uh, an award he got for best CFO. And I think his fundamental point was, sometimes you don't even have to knowingly break the rules. You can be operating within the rules. I mean, he was also extremely apologetic and he acknowledged that he was misleading people. But I think his fundamental message was the rules, when there is an echo chamber within the company, you're hearing legitimization on all fronts. It's very hard to go against the grain and listen to your ethical inner voice. You hear former disgraced executives make sort of self-justifying statements all the time. Is there any sense in which people in business agree with him that accounting rules can be stretched so far they, the results don't really teach you anything by the end? It's really funny because even you know amongst us, there was a really big debate. We couldn't agree. Like Half of the team were not very sympathetic. They really did think that he, he has no other choice. This is naturally what he's going to say. And then the other half of the of the team thought, well, maybe there is um, a stronger message here. He is now trying to help. You know, he feels a bit like a fall guy. Um, why was it that he got made um, a scapegoat when everybody else is doing this? Maybe there is something to this. Um, so it was a very dividing um, presentation, I think. Okay, so if accounting rules are sort of junk, really, and they don't reflect what's really happening in a company, then who does that benefit? 
it benefits uh, the company and and especially if the company is using equity for financing and the market is unaware of what the true value of the company is. And, and presumably short sellers or people who do proper research. I mean, this is sort of rich pickings. He actually... Um, he called for more short sellers to come out and and properly analyze companies because he said clearly the market isn't doing this at the moment and certainly from his consulting work when he gets to see the balance sheets and and the figures of other companies doing these sort of things he was very surprised at how much of Enron-esque sort of practices are still out there. Now, there's an unusual link between Enron and Greece here because he pulled up a chart or a slide and said, remember what got Greece into trouble? It was off-balance sheet accounting. And Matthew Klein, who was there, also from Alphaville, what was the general mood at this festival, this finance festival, about Greece? Was there a feeling that we are on, on the precipice? There was definitely a lot of concern about the situation in terms of the capital controls that have been put in place. I would think in terms of the question of whether they actually leave the euro, there was a lot of divided opinion they don't have to leave the euro. I think there was a general consensus on that. But the question is whether the other countries in the euro area choose to push them out, or alternatively, if the Greek government comes to the conclusion that it would be better for them to leave, even if they don't have to. So that was definitely an ambiguous point. One thing that was particularly interesting that occurred on one of the panels that was discussing the euro crisis was this idea that if Greece is forced out, then there creates a precedent for other countries that have similarly weak growth and high debt levels, such as Portugal and Italy, to potentially in the future, become victim to the same kinds of attacks as Greece has and the same kinds of capital controls and pressure to exit. So there was a sense that whatever happens this week, whatever happens in Sunday's referendum and possible negotiations after this, the problems don't end. That's right. Great. Isabella, Matt, thanks very much for joining us. Now to Saudi Arabia, where Prince Al-Walid has pledged to give his $30 billion fortune to charity, following the example of Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. The prince is famous for his early investments in tech companies like Apple and Twitter. He's also highly sensitive about his fortune. He recently settled a libel battle with Forbes magazine, which accused him of inflating his wealth to improve his position in its rich list. By chance, the man who inspired the prince's philanthropy, Bill Gates, popped into the FT a few days before the prince's announcement. Gates was asked, do philanthropy or taxes have a bigger role to play in sorting out inequality, poverty and disease? Tax systems are the primary thing that asks uh, those who are the most successful to fund the basics that we'd like to have for everybody. Philanthropy is only, even in the United States, where it's the largest, about 2% of the economy. And so, you know, I love philanthropy, but I wouldn't say that it's the solution to whatever your views on, on, on wealth distribution Gates is also raising his personal investments in renewable energy in order to fight climate change. But when he looks at that problem and the conflicts in Syria and elsewhere, doesn't he get a little pessimistic about the world outlook? Well, the fundamental situation is that life is improving dramatically. Now, there's a tendency, partly because of the way news works or human mentality works, to say, oh, it's not peaceful everywhere. Absolutely, these are awful things. Uh, we need to get these things solved. But it, it isn't a framework where people should be negative. They should think of the good things that have happened and say, how do we build on that? Uh, I often look to innovation as the thing that will help us do better. Uh, climate change is a big problem, but it's one that if you do the right types of R&D, you can actually avoid the ill effects. Finally to Guinea, the mineral-rich, cash-poor African nation. Tom Burgess, our investigations correspondent, has been on the trail of one particularly murky deal in the country. 
a company called BSGR, linked to an Israeli diamond billionaire called Benny Steinmetz, was granted exploration rights over a particularly attractive iron ore deposit called Simandu. Here is an extract from Tom's recent podcast about the deal and the subsequent investigation. BSGR had already been granted exploration rights to some smaller Ghanaian iron ore prospect. Once it had secured the rights to the northern half of Simandu, it wouldn't be long before the company sold on a lucrative stake in its Ghanaian assets, pulling off what a veteran of African mining called the best private mining deal of our generation. But there was a lingering question. How did a company with scant history in Guinea persuade its rulers to hand over rights to such a precious resource? BSGRs always maintained that everything was above board. But as I'll explain next time, a subsequent investigation by the Guinean government would conclude that it involved a dictator's wife, a French intermediary and a multi-million dollar bribery scheme. And you can find the full series of podcasts at ft.com slash podcasts. That's all for this week. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryan, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.